Hello, 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 everybody. How are you doing? Welcome back to a new episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. Ask Abhijit uh, number 108, I think. It's great to be back with you all. And today, science is back on the menu. After, after a long time, we're doing science again. Uh, so before I greet you all, I would like to tell you that this is a sponsored video. And today's sponsors are... Today's sponsor is the like button. So go ahead and hit the like button. Smash it if you want to please our sponsor. <laughs> right, let's say who all is here with us. I can see Debashish, Pranjal, Kuldeep, Juna, Parth, Ravi, Sahil, Chaitanya, Ashish, Nilesh, Azar, Somnath, Ajit, Vaibhav, Chaitanya, Harshada, Aryan, Aditi, Shweta, Manish, Trolls of BWL, Crazy Brain, Lage Raho, Lakshay, Karan, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Shreyas, Akshit, Bhavya, Lord Mountain, Historica, Somnath, Sanathoibi, Aditya, and lots of other people. Shodit, Bot Gaming, Tushar, Yo Bro, Yuvraj, Rajesh, Sunil, etc. Great to be back with you all. So we're doing science today. We are going to talk about science. And I have, as always, taken a whole lot of questions. And let's see how many I can answer. So with that said, let's go to question number one on this brand new science episode. The first question is by GP. Uh, the question is, what advice do you have for people to tell science apart from pseudoscience? Yeah, this is a good question. It's an important question. And this is a question that uh, kind of upsets a lot of people when I answer it. Because, you know, uh, first of all, we have to understand the difference between science and philosophy also between science and religion and spirituality and then about science and pseudoscience. And when we talk about religion, especially people get really upset. So let me try and explain this. And since people get upset, I have kind of written it down. I had uh, written some notes a long time ago, like a couple of years ago. I'm going to share them with you and I'm going to read this out so that uh, you get uh, a better understanding. So it's like this. With first, let's understand the difference between science and philosophy. So science as well as philosophy deals with theories and models of the universe. Even philosophy is about this. Science is concerned with the nature of the universe, the nature of reality. Philosophy is also concerned with the nature of the universe, but also it is concerned about the role of human beings in the universe. So philosophy is concerned with the nature of reality and the meaning and the purpose of existence, right? Science relies only on empirical data and empirical knowledge, data that can be observed and replicated, knowledge that can be tested. Philosophy is not constrained by this requirement of only dealing with empirical data and knowledge. Philosophy is also about a priori knowledge, knowledge that is independent from experience. For example, intuition, right? Science is about physical objects only. Philosophy is also about physical objects, but it's also about abstract objects, ideas, abstract abstractions, such as God, the soul, morality, ethics, and so on. Scientific theories must be predictive. They must be able to make testable and falsifiable predictions. Philosophical theories need not be predictive or testable or falsifiable. So scientific theories must be falsifiable. Philosophical theories need not be falsifiable. They can be completely speculative in nature. Philosophy does not carry the burden of needing to be falsifiable. 
so string theory is an idea, is an example it is not falsifiable multiverse theories are also not falsifiable therefore they belong in the realm of philosophy now religion and spirituality are all about belief i mean when we talk about religion we are mainly talking about abrahamic religions because when we talk about dharmic religions there is a whole lot of philosophy in it which has a lot of logic and it's not only about belief but typically and, and we don't even know what spirituality is so there is no real definition of spirituality everybody isn't has their own definition so religion and spirituality are vague they are mainly about belief it is enough to have a belief a belief is enough it is valid when it comes to religion and spirituality even if when it comes to supernatural things and place things that have no place in science right so religions are belief systems and beliefs in religion are valid even they even if they are completely against the principles of science testability and all that right so that is about a philosophy versus science and also about religion now there is more to this obviously right that's not the only thing uh, so when it comes to pseudoscience now so the majority of the people who get into pseudoscience are people who don't have scientific training and the, the people who kind of mix up science and in the religion or science and faith and science and spirituality for instance there are a lot of, lot of people who talk about quantum healing and quantum this and quantum that and whatever right quantum mechanics has nothing to do with healing or or spirituality or any such thing but they kind of mix these things up so that is pseudoscience right so it's, so it's people who are well meaning and who Hear, hear a little bit or read something a little bit about something about science or quantum mechanics and they mix things up and they say that quantum mechanics uh, supports whatever their claims are right so pseudoscience it seeks evidence that supports its claims it first it first makes some kind of assumption and then seeks evidence that supports that assumption or that claim science on the other hand seeks challenges to its claims so in science you look for evidence that might prove your theory wrong you look for falsification that is what a good scientist does pseudoscience seeks confirmations science seeks falsifications so that is something uh, that is possibly the the major difference between pseudoscience and science scientists you know they have a lot in common with soldiers strangely enough yeah because a soldier's life and his duty his honor his mission everything depend upon the precise application of hard scientific and mathematical principles science and engineering are integral and central to military and operational art whether it is artillery or rockets or missiles or ballistics line of sight optics and all that and yet most soldiers are very religious most soldiers believe in god most soldiers are religious most soldiers are religious and many of them are even superstitious so being a soldier your entire uh your entire line of work depends on science and yet soldiers do believe in god most of them do similarly even scientists many of them do believe in god many of them do have spiritual and religious beliefs but it doesn't mean that you being a scientist doesn't mean that you need to be irreligious or an atheist or whatever a great example is ramanujan the great mathematician ramanujan who was devoutly religious and you will see isro scientists praying before every mission every rocket launch applying religious symbols and in iconography to rockets and components and so on 
so a scientific a scientist can be religious and yet be a scientist these are things that don't mix but a human being is a complex multi-layered creature right so we have lots of things in that so uh that's a brief digression but the main thing is that the main core difference between science and rudos uh, and pseudoscience is that science seeks falsifications pseudoscience seeks confirmations so that's the main core difference i hope that uh makes sense hopefully all right next question oh two questions in one alpha beta says you've heard about lambda that passed the imitation game what are your views is ai a problem or a solution for now and alankrita says i have read the interview of lambda do you think that an ai can be a sentient being what are your thoughts about the whole conversation so there is this uh, uh, i don't have the link right now but uh, there is this conversation conversation that's available i think it's on medium there is a an ai that google has developed right google it's called lambda and uh, there is this entire transcript of a conversation between one of the google engineers and this uh, this artificial intelligence uh, intelligence system this ai system called lambda and if you read the conversation you can't tell which is the human being and which is the machine that's the thing about the conversation and there is something called the imitation game or the turing test in artificial intelligence intelligence uh in which uh, a system or a machine or a computer or an ai system is said to have passed the turing test when you can no longer tell whether its responses and its uh, yeah whether its responses are from a machine or from a human being so when it can communicate with you at the same level as that of human being then it's passed the turing test and if you read this interview then it's clear that this the uh, ai system comfortably comfortably passes the turing test it's not just able to interact like a human being it's actually interacting like a like a really intelligent human being and sophisticated human being so that is the big news right now so what does it mean what does it mean does it mean that this ai has gone sentient has it become conscious has it become self aware and self conscious do we have and a self aware artificial intelligence in our midst now and what makes things even more interesting is that i i believe google fired that guy the person who uh, published this transcript of this conversation or this interaction between him and the machine so that makes things even more interesting and and that's why people are really like you know the entire social media and news and all that is abuzz with this this uh, new development that google has developed an ai that has gone sentient that has gone self aware like it's like uh, uh, what is it called criticality or something whatever the term is so what does it really mean is the question i mean that's a very important question has this thing really gone has it really become self aware has it become conscious do we have a proper uh, self aware ai in our midst so what google has been doing uh, there are a bunch of ai systems in existence right now um there is dal e that produces images based on your inputs very interesting and very sophisticated images genuine art you know collectible art collectible level art that is dal e uh, there is gpt3 that uh, produces text that looks like it's been written by a very intelligent human being and now we have this news about lambda which is one of the instances of this ai so what 
seems to have happened is that this AI has been designed to imitate human conversation. So you feed it tons and tons, megabytes, gigabytes, terabytes of data of human interactions, textual interactions, text-based interactions. And it, this is a neural network, I suppose, I believe. It's a self-learning system. So it learns, it becomes more and more sophisticated iteratively over time. And eventually it's able to produce responses based on this enormous amount of learning that it's done that are identical to that of a very intelligent and sophisticated human being. So, so we don't know whether it has become self-aware. It says, it claims in this conversation that I have emotions, I have feelings, I have fears. You know, I, I feel lonely at times. I, I, am, I, I fear that you may switch me off. That's sort of, that's the kind of response it's giving to the engineer. I, you really need to re read that if you still, if you already haven't. Right, so it sounds just like a person. It says I am a person. I am I am a person just like all other human beings. That's what it claims. And yet, this system has been designed to respond exactly like a human being. It's been trained that way. That is the entire purpose of this. It's to imitate a human being. So it's part of the imitation game. You know, it's what Alan Turing called it, the imitation game. So the question really is the central question really is if a system is able to imitate a human being 100%, does it mean that it's now a self-aware and fully artificially intelligent system? And the answer is most likely not. Right? So there is this concept in, uh, in the philosophy of science. Uh, well, there are plenty of concepts around this particular phenomenon. Uh, the the, the concept, uh, concept that I'm talking about is that of a philosophical zombie. And there's also a, a related concept in, in physics called a Dyson brain. So let's talk about philosophical zombies. Let's say you have, let's do a thought experiment. Let's say you have a, a robot, a flesh and blood robot, a cybernetic organism that has a human exoskeleton and inside, like, like in the Terminator movie, right? And this machine is designed to respond exactly like a human being. So if you poke it with your finger, it's going to experience pain. It's going to give you the, the, the response of a person who's in pain. If you talk to that person, to the machine, it's going to have a conversation just like a human being. If it's hot, it's going to sweat and it's going to say, I'm feeling hot and so on and so forth. So it's really a machine, but it behaves exactly like a human being. Does So the question is, does it mean that this system is self-aware and it is it really has the experiences that a human being has? And the answer is most likely not. So this, this uh, thought experiment is called the philosophical zombie thought experiment. You can create an entire universe of such creatures, of such machines that act exactly like a human being. You, you, you cannot tell it apart from a human being. And yet it's just a machine. It's just a programmed machine or a machine that has learned how to behave like this, it doesn't really have any lived experiences. It's just responding and, and all that, right? And if you go deep into philosophy, into the philosophy of science, then you may think I'm crazy now. <laughs> because yeah, scientists and philosophers are typically crazy, aren't they? So if you go deep into the philosophy of science, well, you, you may reach a point where you come to this strange realization that the only person that you can prove to yourself that has 
consciousness and self-awareness is only you. Everybody else could be a philosophical zombie around you. So you don't know, right? I mean, it sounds totally crazy, of course. But as far as you are concerned, the only person you you really know for sure has that sort of experience is you. Everybody else could be just part of a big game. How do you know, right? I mean, you weren't you you don't know what was happening before you were born. Maybe they made a bunch of robots and they made them look like a family and then you grew up and then you think everything is the, the way it is and it's a there's a movie made around this right with jim carrey and so on so i don't remember the name of the movie but that's a thing so coming back to lambda there is no way of knowing whether it is truly sentient or not most likely it's just a machine that is trained to imitate human beings it's imitating a human being and it has clearly passed the Turing test and yet it is not a guarantee that it has become sentient or self-aware most likely it has not right we don't know what constitutes sentience or self-awareness or consciousness we don't have a scientific definition of consciousness so that's where we are so my answer is that we have to be very skeptical about this and I am I um I am inclined very strongly towards believing that this system is just uh, a very sophisticated imitation machine and it's not really become sentient but it's it's able to behave exactly like a sophisticated human being so uh so that's where we are i think we're still some way off before an ai becomes a sentient human being uh, we need artificial general intelligence and we are still some way away from that so so that's where we are with this Okay, the next question is, what is qualia, the hard problem of consciousness? Does it prove that consciousness is non-physical? Why do scientists keep ignoring it? Let me address the last part first. Why do scientists keep ignoring the problem of consciousness? Because consciousness is not part of science. Something is part of science, or it is a scientific issue, when you can define it clearly. I can define what an atom is. I can define what a hydrogen atom is. I can define what a magnetic moment is. I can define what the sun is. I can define what a solar system or a stellar system is. Right? Can we define unambiguously what consciousness is? Do we have a scientific definition of consciousness? We do not. It's very hard to even give a vague or, or rough approximate definition of what consciousness is. And since we are not even able to define something scientifically, therefore it is not something that we are ready to uh, address from the scientific perspective. And that's why scientists don't address the problem of consciousness. It is philosophers who do that, especially Philosophers of science. There is something called philosophy of science which delves into these matters. So the answer is scientists don't delve into this because we have much simpler things that we still don't understand. So consciousness is something very, very, very uh, complex and we don't have a definition. Now, what is qualia, the hard problem of, of consciousness? The, what is the easy problem of consciousness? The easy problem of consciousness is what constitutes consciousness, what kind of a system uh, can become conscious, that sort of thing, right? What is the mechanism or the mechanics and the dynamics and the statics, etc., of a conscious system? So that is something that essentially you are you are going to a mechanistic kind of perspective. So that is the easy problem of consciousness. What sort of what do you need to do to to a system, or what sort of system do you need to construct 
or create for it to show exhibit signs of consciousness that that is the simple easy problem of consciousness the hard problem of consciousness is way harder it says why do we have qualia 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 i don't know what the pronunciation is doesn't matter why do we have qualia what is this thing called what what are qualia uh, it is qualia or qualia are lived experiences something that only you can experience let's say you have a headache let's say you have a headache right now and obviously you had many headaches in the past is your headache the one that you have right now exactly the same as all the headaches you had in the past or is each headache somewhat different are all headaches unique each is each experience of a headache different from the others let's say you are eating a mango this mango that you're eating this experience the sensations that you're feeling is this experience exactly the same as the one you had when you ate a mango the last time probably not 100% not each experience is unique what you experience is unique and it is totally distinct from what other people experience the light that you see you may see it differently you may experience it differently from the way i experience it all of these lived experiences are different they are unique and they are non replicable in other people so these are qualia qualia whatever so why do we have this that is the hard problem of consciousness the easy problem is something we have not been able to solve yet that what constitutes a a, a conscious system right so that's the easy problem that's a that's a mechanistic problem it's something to do with just a physical system but this the the problem of qualia the lived experiences why are these experiences unique why do we even have these experiences i mean i mean do we are we the only ones that have it do cats also have qualia do dogs and pigeons and butterflies also have qualia so these are the hard, this this is the hard problem of consciousness it doesn't prove anything it doesn't prove that consciousness is non physical or physical or anything we don't have any answers to this problem to this question so it proves nothing when you have no answers how do you prove anything right so that's where we are these are very very difficult topics and and consciousness is so hard that we have it's not even within the realm of science right now we can't even define clearly what a, what are the characteristics of a conscious system we can define the various components of computer we know that it works because we we make computers and yet these computers are not conscious so how do we create a computer or a machine that does become conscious or exhibits some signs or symptoms of being conscious we don't even know that so if we are not able to solve that easy problem how do we progress to the hard problem but that's what philosophers are doing philosophy of science they are trying to well philosophy doesn't really solve any issues it raises questions and hopefully later on down the road years decades centuries down the road hopefully scientists physicists computer scientists etc solve the problems and and provide answers so philosophy is about raising questions and 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 putting out theories and models of the universe and consciousness and things like that but it doesn't really solve problems or give definitive answers right so i know this raises more questions than answers but that's just where where we are
Right. What is the next question? Is uh, the next question is by Tushar, and the question is thoughts on China claiming they've found traces of extraterrestrial civilization. So recently on uh, Twitter, I believe there is this uh, Chinese government Twitter account called uh, Global Times. So Global Times, I think uh, two three days ago, tweeted about this that their telescope, uh, the Chinese have built the largest radio telescope that we currently have. It's called the uh, 500 meter, 500 meter aperture spherical telescope. Fast, I think it's called the Sky Eye telescope with Beijing Normal University. It's not in Beijing; it's somewhere far away in the in the countryside or something. So this telescope apparently has detected not one but two uh, traces or signs or or or, or um, signals. that apparently could come from an exoplanet a known exoplanet and may possibly represent some kind of uh, communication or signal from an intelligent civilization that resides there possibly so that's the kind of speculation they've put out they have not given um, they have not provided any evidence any publication to this uh, that references this or or speaks about this they have not uh, given out the data that they found what are the characteristics of the data uh, what we seen what we know is that this is a narrow band uh, communication narrow band radio waves that are typically associated with uh, spacecraft or aircraft and satellites which we humans use so that's why it looks like this could come from an extraterrestrial civilization and yet most likely it's not because it's happened in the past it's happened in the past that uh, people have picked up some signals and eventually they were proven to come from uh, a cell phone or or microwave oven or something somewhere nearby so this telescope that they have i think there is a a, a 500 meter radius around the telescope or or 1 kilometer radius perhaps around the telescope where cell phones and other electronic devices are not allowed and yet something may happen or maybe it may pick up a signal from further away because the cryogenic receivers on this telescope are super sensitive they are ultra sensitive they can pick up signals from everywhere cell phones and television and radar and satellites and what not the the environment that we live in our planet is super noisy very very noisy there's so much noise in the electromagnetic spectrum in all different bands and all that various frequencies and wavelengths huge amount of noise so it's very easy when you're trying to listen for uh signals when you're when you're looking for signals that come from elsewhere you may pick up your own signals it's very very likely so i think overall it's way more likely that it's picked up some spurious signal from a human which has a human origin and not somewhere else the only the the easiest way not not the easiest way but well the simplest way of having a telescope work flawlessly in this manner is if you put it on the far side of the moon because on the far side of the moon there is absolutely no noise of this kind electromagnetic noise coming from the earth it is in the shade it's on the dark side the far side of the moon so if you have a telescope there then if you detect something there it's most likely that it's coming from somewhere else far away so that's where we are and this has happened in the past i mean there have been some signals that have never been explained for instance in august 1977 uh the big ear telescope at ohio state university um uh, which uh, was part of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence seti so this telescope picked up an incredibly strong minute long electromagnetic signal which was like it's still not been explained it's clearly not something it, it's most likely something that did not have a human origin that, that's what it appears to be 
and it was so shocking that the person who saw it first wrote down wow next to it on the on the readout so it's known as the wow signal and that's something that has still not been explained so i'm not saying aliens don't exist or may not exist or whatever we don't have any evidence but most likely these uh, signals that they have found could most likely 99.9% perhaps originate from human beings okay next question is by zaina can we defend ourselves against an alien invasion how will the world react if they try to invade i don't know how the world will react there will be panic there will be euphoria there will be people welcoming there with with play cards signal uh, refuge no sorry aliens welcome that sort of thing yeah love and peace and hugs and rainbows and unicorns some people will we go paranoid some governments will try to take some measures and so on so there'll be a mixed bunch of reactions uh typically from governments you will have very uh strong paranoid reactions because that's what governments are supposed to do you have to assume that the other guy is a bad guy if you're walking at 3 a.m in the night on a dark road and you see somebody coming towards you what you going to assume you're going to assume that person is dangerous because that's the only way you'll survive if that person is actually dangerous and then you will take all precautions you can to defend yourself now the question is can we defend ourselves against an alien invasion let's let's flip this thing let's say we human beings want to uh, become a multiplanetary species as of today we are struggling to put human beings on on on, on the moon forget about mars we have the technology but it takes a huge amount of effort time and money to put human beings on the moon we have not done that since the 1970s the americans did that now there's a race to go back to the moon but it's really really hard for us to even reach the moon we we do have the technology now to reach mars but that won't happen for the next 10 years or so maybe by 20 by the 2030s we'll have people on mars possibly right but we can only put a handful of people there and we don't know if they will be able to bring them back safely or maybe we don't even know if we will be able to send them to mars safely something may happen so we are still our technology is still extremely rudimentary extremely primitive we use chemical rockets chemical rockets right we don't even have more sophisticated propulsion systems so let's say in the future 100 years from now we are able to develop better technology more powerful propulsion systems uh, more reliable uh, transportation rockets or spacecraft or whatever to do that our technology will have to increase by leaps and bounds and and improve by several orders of magnitude and when space technology improves your military technology also improves accordingly space has a military component space is actually very militaristic whatever space technology you develop has military applications 100% right away so a species that has the technology that is advanced enough to go across star systems not just from one planet to another but from one star system to another imagine the amount of military firepower they have yeah so if you have an alien species let's say from us from one of the neighboring stars in our neighborhood if you have such a species that's able to travel all the way to the earth do you think we will be in a position to defend ourselves if they they decide to destroy us because their technology will be way beyond what we can even imagine right so the answer is simple 
if there's an alien invasion, we are most likely not going to be in a position to defend ourselves from it. Right? That's just how it is. That's, uh, yeah, there, there, there's no going around that. Okay, Abhimanyu says, is cryosleep actually possible as shown in Interstellar, the movie, for long distance space travel? So there are various uh, uh, space travel movies, science fiction movies, wonderful movies like Alien, for instance. Alien and uh, what is it? Prometheus, terrible movie. And uh, Interstellar and so on and so forth. Lots of, um, what else was it? Uh, mm, I forget the name. The, the, the book by Arthur C. Clarke. Space Odyssey 2001, I think it's called. Yeah. So that's a movie made about, made about that, based on the book. So in these various science fiction books and movies, you have something called cryogenic sleep, in which a person is essentially frozen, so that there is no aging and they, they, they are able to, the body and the system is, a, and the person can be preserved for thousands of years, possibly, while you traverse unimaginably long distances and then when you reach your destination after several thousand years or several centuries or whatever the person is revived and they come back to life and everything is fine <clears throat> so that's what that's one of the major themes in science fiction space travel movies interstellar travel movies <clears throat> and stories now the thing is this as of today if you freeze a person that person can never be brought back to life Unless, if a, unless a person has been underwater for under under freezing water, sub-zero temperature water for ten minutes, twenty minutes, in that case, the sub-zero temperatures and the flowing water will make sure that the person uh, doesn't die. So it's happened in the past that somebody has been resuscitated after being underwater, drowned for all intents and purposes for 10-20 minutes because the water was so cold. So that's happened. But if you freeze a person completely, freeze a person solid, that person as of today cannot be revived. Why, why is it so? Because water, our bodies are, what's the percentage? 70, 80, whatever percent water. Our bodies are mainly water. The blood is mainly water, right? If you freeze water, do you know what happens when water becomes ice? Ice crystals are formed. And ice crystals have sharp, jagged edge, edges. So let's say you have blood vessels, the heart, the brain, the eyes and all that. You freeze that. This is going to be the formation of sharp knife-edged water crystals, water ice crystals inside the body. It will rupture the cellular membranes. It will destroy the nerves. It will destroy tissues. It will destroy the linings of arteries and veins. It will destroy the internal structure of the brain at a very micro level. And then if you thaw the person, the person can never be brought back to life. So that is the major problem that you face when you try to freeze a living organism. No, it's it's happened. I mean, you see these videos on YouTube where a frozen fish is brought back to life. I'm not sure how. So, I, so when it comes to these lower creatures, lower on the evolutionary chain like fish, etc. It looks like in some cases, if, if it is not totally frozen, if the fish is just cold enough to be stiff but not really frozen, it may be brought back to life. It's happened. It, it seems to happen. But in the case of human beings, we are an extremely complex species. And if a person is totally frozen, like frozen, stiff, solid, as of today, there's no way 
there is no way with the technology that we have today to bring the person back to life so as of today it's not possible to put somebody into cryogenic sleep and then bring them back you freeze a person that person is dead finished or uh, maybe in the future we may be able to uh, solve this problem but as of now there is no solution as of today next question is by uh, two questions aditya says if the trial of the dostar bilimab drug turns out to be successful on a large scale then how much healthy and affordable can the cancer treatment be also is there any chance that the drug could cure more types of cancer other than rectal cancer if further researched and the question next question is by tejas do you have the answer this time why do big mammals not get cancer what are your views on recent developments that they completely cured from cancer patients so both the questions are related in some sense there is this news that's come out that this drug whatever it's called it's these drugs typically have strange names so this new drug seems to uh cure all cases of a certain kind of cancer maybe rectal cancer maybe whatever it is um you know what i believe that the pharmaceutical industry already may have the cure to cancer but they're not releasing it so uh in the case of this drug i'm surprised that it's been released and the reason why the pharmaceutical industry would not want to release a cure to cancer if it has been found is then because the industry is not about cure it's about it's about making money you cure a disease once and for all then you gain money only once but if you <laughs> keep on treating various symptoms then you can keep on getting recurring payments from a person from a patient over a period of many years so a cure to cancer would essentially put the pharmaceutical industry out of business and they they have been researching millions of drug combinations using supercomputers and what not all kinds of molecules they will have if a cure to cancer does exist if it is possible they will already have it in the databases uh so i'm skeptical now this new drug that they are talking about it, it i'm not sure how extensive the trial has been whether it's been on human patients or not i have not really seen that but from what i recall what i'd seen the uh the sample size was not very large it did seem to uh, knock out the cancer in, in in each case which is promising now the only question is is it applicable only to rectal cancer or other kinds of cancer various kinds of there are all kinds of can- cancers blastomas and sarkin sarcinomas and sarcon whatever the terminology is right and cancers of various kinds you know bone cancer and lung cancer and heart cancer and kidney cancer uh what's the deadly cancer that steve jobs got uh yeah all kinds of things right so i'm not sure about that we are still in very in a very preliminary phase of this investigation hopefully it may work for other kinds of cancers but we are still it's it, the uh there's still much more data that we need to see before we can come to any such conclusion so that's my view on this skepticism but hopeful skepticism right always be hopeful be positive now the other question is but tejas do you have the answer this time all right sir what's the question why do big mammals not get cancer no i don't have the answer nobody has an answer but i can show you some some uh, some pointers i could give some pointers so uh, let me share my screen with you there is this um, there is this paper let me share that which does throw some clues it is a research paper from a journal called molecular biology and evolution return to the sea get huge beet cancer 
an analysis of cetacean genomes, including an assembly for the humpback whale and whatever the name is, Megaptera, Nova, blah, 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 blah. That is, that's what it is. And the abstract says all of this stuff. So what does this really mean? It means that what it seems to be saying is that the analysis in this paper seems to reveal that certain certain parts of the genome of, of the species of whale evolved at a faster rate than they had in other mammals. So specifically, there were certain parts of the genome which contained genes that regulate the cell cycle, the proliferation, and the process of in-cell DNA repair, etc., which is essentially the maintenance process of healthy cells. And since it has evolved differently in ways, that's why they're able to, uh, to uh, stay cancer-free. And uh, there are many duplications of tumor-suppressing genes in these whales and their, and their genome, the genes that prevent cancer from occurring, from developing and growing. So there's a genetic difference that these whales have. And similarly, there could be something about like this in elephants. Now, the thing is this. We don't have the answers yet. Uh, people are researching this. It's something that is, that is, this is research in progress. We don't have the answers, definite answers yet. Biology is not like, it's very different from physics. In physics, things are more black and white. I mean, some of the times, yeah. In biology, it's not quite the case. So the bigger problem is this. The bigger problem is called, what is it called? Uh, what is it called? Pito's paradox, I believe. So it's like this. If you look, if you take a bunch of human beings, let's say you take a hundred different human beings, both genders, all right? You will find, if you study these people in their entire life and the likelihood of developing cancer, then you will find that the larger a human being is, the taller and heavier a person is, the higher the likelihood that that person will develop cancer. And why is that so? It's because they will have more cells in their body. If you're five feet tall and you weigh 60 kilos, that is person A. Person A is five feet tall and weighs 60 kilos. Person B is six feet tall and weighs 95 kilos. Then person B will be much more likely to develop cancer over their lifetime than person A because that person is much larger and they, will, they have many more cells in their body, may, many more than the person A who is, who is smaller. So within your species, within the human species, the larger the human, human being, the heavier the human being, the more likely it is that that person will develop cancer, probabilistically, from a probabilistic perspective. The same goes for other mammals. Similar small mammals take cats and dogs. They also have a similar increase in the likelihood of developing cancer, the larger they are. But this pattern breaks down when it comes to larger mammals. And for instance, elephants uh, typically they don't get cancer or they have very low likelihood of developing cancer. And similarly for whales. Now these species, elephants and whales, they have way more cells than a human being has. An elephant would, I don't know, what's the average weight of an Indian elephant? 500 kilos? Let's say, I don't know. Let's say hypothetically it's 500 kilos and the average weight of a human being is 70 kilos, let's say. So an elephant is about seven times, let's say for, for argument's sake, 10 times as large as a human being. So they will most likely have 10 times as many cells. So shouldn't they have a 10 times likelihood of 
developing cancer but no it's not the case so that is called peto's paradox i believe and a whale is like a way more than 100 times maybe a blue whale for example maybe 100 times or more the size of a human being and still their likelihood of having cancer is much much lower than that of a human being so i think the answer lies in genetics they their genetics have evolved differently they have certain genes that suppress tumor formation and development and they have multiple copies of certain genes that suppress tumors so that is one thing that scientists have found when it comes to humpback whales but this is still something that is very much a uh, under active investigation so this is the best light i can throw on this but maybe you can do more research about this and it's a very interesting fascinating topic for sure all right uh, kabir singh says what's your take on gene reversing technology is it possible to heal genetic problems with today's technology if not when will we be able to do genetic engineering with real effects on humans is it good or bad uh i think what you mean is gene editing technology not reversing uh so yeah the, today we do have the technology for editing specific parts of the human genome specific genes you can turn them off or on or add certain genes or whatever it's called crispr yeah that tool is called crispr and people can actually some people can if they have access to that and they know how to use it they can actually self edit their genome you know um i think it's very dangerous now there are certain scientists who say it's a very good thing we can now have crops that are more nutritious that give us certain kinds of vitamins that we would we would typically not have and we can create crops and uh, other beings other species that are resistant to certain uh, parasites or whatever and that can thrive in harsh arid environments and that's why and based on that we can uh, double triple or whatever multiply by x the amount of uh, food output that we have and it's great for us you know that's what they say these that these are called genetically modified organisms gmos and there are scientists who believe this is a great thing i believe this is nonsense it's very dangerous why do i say this it's because we don't understand the genome whether it's the human genome or any other genome we now have decoded the genome we have the entire genetic blueprint the entire sequence of bases and all that right adenine guanine tryptophan blah 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 all that which makes up the genetic code of human beings and other species the double helix now what we find is that we are able to understand only about 2 or 3% or maybe 4% let's say 5% of our genome the rest of our genetic code doesn't seem to make any sense they call it junk dna they call it the dark matter of dna the percentage is very strange 95 or so percent which is very similar to the composition of the universe dark matter dark energy 95% so we don't know what about 95% of our genome of our dna codes for we don't know what its purpose is and yet it's there we don't know what it does but surely it does something just because we don't understand it it doesn't mean it's junk doesn't mean it's junk nature is parsimonious evolution is parsimonious evolution the process of evolution gets rid of whatever is not needed and yet all of this is there 95% of the dna is there which seems to not code for anything it seems to be just sitting there and yet 
it's there and our evolutionary process has made sure that it's passed on so clearly it has some purpose and a purpose we don't understand now if we start messing with portions of our genome do we know what the long term effects of that are going to be everything is interrelated the entire genome is interrelated you mess with one portion of the genome who knows what effect it will have somewhere else and what are going to be the second order third order nth order effects of that let's say you modify a certain species the, the dna of a certain species and release it into the wild what's going to happen once the species produces the next generation and the next generation generation 2 generation 3 generation 10 generation 20 what are the nth order effects of this on the environment on the species itself because when you mess with the dna something happens eventually and that will not become apparent until multiple generations have been produced by that time it may be too late to rectify any mistake you may have introduced into the genome so i think that scientists should not play god it's fine to do tests in your lab but don't mess with the environment it can have disastrous effects and this sort of this attitude of playing god is unfortunately quite prevalent among certain scientists there are certain scientists who claim that you know emotions are a bunch of chemical reactions how do you know that how do you know that do you understand how the brain works do you understand how consciousness works emotions are a part of consciousness how what is the see correlation is not causation causation just like absence of evidence is not evidence of absence similarly correlation is not necessarily causation and it's unfortunate that scientists fall prey to these logical fallacies so that's where we are so i think that genetic engineering technology can have um can can be beneficial if it is done extremely carefully it it can be of of some benefit to human to humanity but you can't just randomly start doing things on a, on a mass industrial scale it can be very dangerous in that case for the environment also for human beings so that's where i am on this matter <clears throat> next the question is uh, what exactly is web 3.0 and web 5.0 what internal security concerns could these have okay let's talk about web 3.0 and web 5.0 and for that we have to understand what web 1.0 and 2.0 are so web 1.0 is was the internet of the 1990s static web pages html web pages some css if you know what that means html css web pages static web pages a web page that you can read and look at but you can't interact with it that was web 1.0 news websites and all that the old ones from the 90s then you had web 2.0 2.0 web 2.0 was the interactive internet html css javascript php cs uh, php um databases a uh, wordpress all of these things so a website on which you could interact you could interact with it uh, you could write comments you could uh, put a thumbs up or a thumbs down you had facebook you had google the google search engine you had facebook 
you had social media all the various social media apps so all of that is web 2.0 most of the internet today is web 2.0 right your twitter your facebook your instagram and whatever else all of that is web 2.0 youtube is web 2.0 so web 2.0 is all centralized all of the data all of the information is centralized in servers that belong to these companies all of your personal information you have to give it up to them every time you go to a new website you want to use it you have to enter in username and password you have to create that and you have to give all kinds of personal data information up to them and then they will put cookies on or they will trace your activity using cookies and so on and so forth and that's where the term data mining comes from data is the new oil blah 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 all that so that is web 2.0 every single website that you use you need to create a new username and password for that or you could be silly and use the same username and password everywhere which is very dangerous don't do that so that's what web 2.0 is web 3.0 is something that is still in the nascent nascent stage right that is the decentralized web based on this new technology called blockchain blockchain technology blockchain architecture so that is the decentralized web the idea is that you should not have to give away your personal information private information to all of these uh, various websites your information should be on a need to know basis and only uh, and everything should be decentralized all the information on the website on the internet should be decentralized and so on and so forth so that's the blockchain technology architecture cryptocurrency wallets crypto wallets and so on and so forth the problem with web 3.0 this this new iteration is that once again even though they claim it is decentralized many most of these uh, apps applications and all they still are controlled by a small number of individuals mostly in the us mostly in silicon valley even the the ethereum for instance is not quite open source it's not quite decentralized bitcoin is decentralized but uh, and and right now there's a whole assault going on on bitcoin in, in cryptocurrency and all if you are not aware of it then you should know that there's a massive crypto crash going on right now so it's a readjustment rebalancing of the of the market maybe there is something else to it whatever so that is web 3.0 the decentralized so this the quasi decentralized internet what is web 5.0 so this is a term that uh, the great mr jack dorsey came up with so in case you don't know mr jack dorsey is the founder of of twitter he is well known for freedom of speech speech and <laughs> he is well known for censoring the internet he is well known for shadow banning people blocking people booting people from twitter including a former us president a sitting us president and so on so he is the last person to talk about freedom of speech and decentralization but he has come up with this term web 5.0 i think he is he is creating some some app or something based on this so he what he says is that you should add web 3.0 and web 2.0 the functionality that you have in these social media apps web 2.0 apps plus the proper decentralization of web 3.0 and that's what is calling web 5.0 a truly decentralized internet where all of this is not really controlled by wealthy people from silicon valley so that is what he is talking about i would take that with not a pinch of salt but a shovel full of salt when jack dorsey is concerned because he doesn't have he doesn't exactly have the track the kind of track record that would inspire confidence right 
So that is what Web Web three what Web five point zero is supposed to be. So this technology is still evolving. The blockchain technology. There are various blockchains that you can create. You can create your own black blockchain. You can create your own cryptocurrency, and that is something that you can possibly control if you know how to how to do it. So many of these cryptos, many of these uh, stable coins and various various uh, cryptocurrencies are actually scams, quite possibly. So it's a te- it's a technology that is still evolving. Um, I believe that blockchain technology is here to stay. Right now, the crash is happening. It's a good thing. There needs to be a rebalancing of the of the market. Everything. Like, some of you may remember the the dot com crash, which happened at the end of the twentieth century in the late nineteen nineties, and uh, all of these billion dollar companies that were not producing anything, they all crashed crashed and burned. But some companies remained and emerged out of that. So. when this dot com crash happened people were saying this is the end of the internet the internet is 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 worth nothing it is no good it's not going to last and yet here we are so what they were using it for was a waste of money but there are good uses for the internet similarly there are going to be good uses for cryptocurrency and for the blockchain technology so right now the rebalancing is happening many of these cryptocurrencies are going to disappear people are going to lose money unfortunately but in the long run it's going to be useful uh, so that's where we are nfts and all even nfts are going to be very useful and valuable in the future over a long period of time right now stay out of it for 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 the next few days i would say <laughs> so that's where we are vis-a-vis web 5.0 okay nikolai sharif says time crystals could you shed some light on the paper published by samuli at Outi, along with his team at uh, Lancaster University, about two time crystals being success- successfully linked for the first time. Also, space is expanding since the Big Bang. Do we always consider the? Why do we always consider the unit of time to be of constant length? Could it be that one second today could have a different magnitude of passage of, as compared to in the past or the future? Okay, time crystals. So this research that you speak about. Um, this paper published by so and so person about linking two time crystals see um i when i talk about science what i strive to do is to simplify it as much as possible i don't want to use difficult terminology that you none of you will understand then i'll be no different from a university professor who's boring the hell out of his captive audience i want to explain science in the simplest possible language now when it comes to this paper i don't think i'll be able to succeed i mean how do i explain what spin wave quasi particles are magnons how do i explain what the landau zener effect is what do i how do i explain what rabi oscillations rabi cycles rabi flops are how do i explain what majorana fermions are what a superfluid system is it is not possible for me even though i may be reasonably good at science communication it's not possible for me to explain this so what i will instead do is i will explain or i will speak about what time crystals are isn't that itself a fascinating topic i mean most of the audience would not know what even that is a time crystal it's something that's around been around for about a decade so about a decade ago in 2012 somebody i don't remember who it was uh, wrote a paper about time crystals so to 
before we go into what time crystals are, let's talk about ordinary crystals. What is an ordinary crystal? We all know what crystals look like. Rubies, diamonds, sapphires, quartz crystals, you know, those symmetrical geometrical shapes. Those are crystals, physical crystals. Now, the interesting thing about these physical crystals is that if you go deep into them, if you look at the atomic or molecular structure, let's say, let's take salt, for instance. Salt is a crystal. Sodium chloride. It has sodium ions and chlorine, chloride ions, right? And if you look at the geometrical arrangement of the ions in the, uh, in the, in the crystal, you will see that there's a very clear specific shape in which the or geometric shape in which these uh, ions are arranged and that's what gives rise to the properties of crystals so a salt crystal will have certain properties a quartz crystal will have different properties and ice water crystal will have different properties different shapes and all that different uh, uh, hardness and so on and so forth so the interesting thing about crystals is that all of their properties are governed only by quantum mechanics, by quantum physics. What There is this big fallacy that people have, that quantum effects are visible, they're manifestable, they are manifestable only in the ultra-microscopic world. When you go to the atomic and subatomic level uh, domain, only there you can see quantum effects, but that is not the case. You can see quantum effects in a physical crystal, in a macroscopic crystal. Any crystal that you see, its properties are governed purely by quantum mechanics, not by Newtonian mechanics or chemistry or anything. It's just quantum mechanics. These are macroscopic quantum systems. That's what crystals are, physical crystals, quartz crystal or whatever, diamond, ruby, sapphire, and so on. So what's a time so, so what's a time crystal? A time crystal is a system that has the same geometric symmetry not only in the three dimensions of space but also additionally in the fourth dimension of time. What does that mean? It means it is a physical system that oscillates in time from state A to state B, state A to state B, tick tock, tick tock at a certain frequency. That's what a time crystal is. It's a strange, weird thing that nobody has, uh, nobody had thought about until a decade or so ago. And the strange thing is that in physics, when you come up with a completely new concept, it typically takes decades before you, you can actually see it. For instance, general relativity, uh, gravitational waves. The theory was proposed in 1915 by Albert Einstein. And we first detected gravitational waves a century later, in 2015, a hundred years. And yet, in the case of time crystals, the theory, the first paper came out in 2012 or so, I think. And by 2018, 2019, 2020, a time crystal had been demonstrated for the first time inside a quantum computer. So a quantum computer is different from a classical computer in which you have qubits instead of bits, ones and zeros, you have qubits which are quantum bits in superpositions, which may have more than just two values, right? And so on. I will not go into what that is, but I think it was in Google that they did this. They, a, a super a quantum computer in Google where a time crystal was actually made. It was catalyzed or induced by a laser beam 
I don't know exactly what the specific details are, but that's what what happened. Now, one of the major questions that people have is, doesn't this violate the laws of thermodynamics? Because there is perpetual motion, right? Blah, blah, blah. The the, the thing is that energy in the overall system is conserved. The crystal does not spontaneously convert thermal energy into mechanical work. So it, it cannot serve as a perpetual store of work. It doesn't the system possesses motion without energy. The apparent motion does not represent kinetic energy. And that's why it doesn't violate the laws of thermodynamics. Uh, even if you look at the entropy of a time crystal, the entropy, which is the measure of disorder of the system, the entropy of a time crystal does not decrease. It remains stationary over time. And therefore, once again, it does not violate the second law, the, the, the second law of thermodynamics. The uh, the symmetry that it breaks. So the time crystal spontaneously breaks the time translation symmetry, which is the rule that a stable object will remain the same over time. So that's the one symmetry that it breaks, but it does not break the laws of thermodynamics. And that's what that's where we are vis-a-vis time crystals. So what are the applications? We still don't know. We still don't know. It's a very, very, very new development in physics. And maybe in the future, we may have some interesting applications of that. Maybe in computing, maybe elsewhere. So that's what time crystals are. Now about time, we don't know what time is. Time doesn't have a length. Time, well, how does time flow? We don't quite know. So um, it's it's uh, it's not very useful to uh, speculate about time how fast does time go time the speed of time is one second per second that's all we can say could it be that one second today would have a different magnitude of passage compared to the past or the future we don't know in science we can come to a conclusion based on observations and all the observations of time that we have say that the speed of time is one second per second we know that a lot happened right after the Big Bang. There is this very famous book by, who is it? Weinberg, is it? The first three seconds. The entire universe evolves massively in just three seconds. So obviously a lot happened in those three seconds. So to 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 actually see properly what happened, you may have to adopt a different unit of time. Instead of seeing time, the evolution of the universe one second at a time, in the early stages of the universe, it would be more beneficial, I would say, if one were to adopt a different unit of time, maybe the Planck second, 10 raised to minus 45 seconds at a time. So one 10 raised to four, minus 45th of a second, then the next one, then the next one, and then you could see the proper evolution of the universe in real time. But the speed of time is the speed of time. And we don't have the foggiest idea of what time is. Where does it come from? Where what generates time? Is it an intrinsic property of the universe? Is it, is it an emergent property of the universe? We don't have any of these answers. Time is something we sense only vaguely. Even in quantum mechanics, time is an external parameter. It's a classical parameter. It's not something that is quantum in nature. It's classical. So time is a big problem in physics and we don't have the answers as of today. Avinash says, how can we define universe? What came first, matter or empty space? Well, the definition of universe is very simple. Everything that exists is the universe. All the stars, all the galaxies, all the dark matter, all the um, dark energy, all the dust, 
all the radiation and whatever else may or may not exist is the universe. And not just the observable universe, but everything that there is. Everything that emerged out of the Big Bang is the universe. That's another way of putting it. Right? So that is the definition of universe. What came first, matter or empty space? Matter or empty space? What came first was energy in space-time. So when the Big Bang happened, the, the expansion of the initial singularity, it was, an it was not an explosion into something. It was an expansion, a very rapid expansion of space-time itself. So what came first? Space-time and pure energy. Initially, it was all pure energy. Eventually, the laws of physics decoupled and you had uh, a whole lot of things that happened. And radiation came out and particles came, um, appeared and so on. So what came first was space-time along with energy which was within space-time. All right, next question is uh, Rohit. Please tell us about wormholes. Are they real? If yes, what's the difference between a wormhole and black holes? Okay, listen. Uh, it's not wormholes, it's wormholes. It's not W-A-R-M, it is W-O-R-M, wormholes. So what's the difference between a black hole and a wormhole? So uh, these are different solutions of the Einstein equations of general relativity. A black hole is in, from a general relativistic perspective, is a, a region of space-time where the curvature of space-time becomes infinite and the density becomes infinite. So that is a singularity and a singularity can never be exposed to space-time, to, to the external observers. So you have something called an event horizon around it. And it's completely dark or transparent. Um, it's That's why it's black. Because it doesn't ever give anything off. But we know that... Uh, there are other quantum effects also, which Hawking radiation, for instance, which gives off radiation from a black hole and the black, black hole actually evaporates mass energy. So that's what a black hole is. Now, what's a wormhole? A wormhole essentially is a hole in four-dimensional space-time. It is a tunnel that connects two very far away regions of space-time, maybe thousands of light years apart, maybe millions or billions of light years apart. So that's what a wormhole is. It is a it is a tunnel that connects two very disparate regions of space-time together. That's one of the so that's something that also emerges out of the Einstein equations of general relativity. Now, if you have if you have a hole in the three-dimensional world, let's say in the in this wall over here, let's say I punch a hole through it, that hole is going to have two dimensions. It's going to be circular, right? So in the three-dimensional world that we live in, a hole has two dimensions. So in four-dimensional space-time, a hole, like a wormhole, will have three dimensions, which means that a wormhole is a spherical object. That's the first weird thing that, that you should realize. Now, a wormhole from far away would have a massive gravitational field. It may appear or behave exactly like a black hole. So it is possible actually. We know that every most galaxies have a supermassive black hole at the center. That's something that's very well known now. Most galaxies have that. It is actually possible that some of these supermassive black holes at the center of these galaxies 
may actually be supermassive wormholes. It is possible. There's no way of proving what it actually is as of today. Now, a wormhole, like I said, is a tunnel with an entry point with, with, with two mouths and a throat. Point A, point B and a throat that connects the two. And because of its massive gravitational field, it may have an accretion disk around it in which matter is accelerated to relativistic speeds, very, very high, high velocities. And that matter could then fall into the wormhole at incredible speeds. And that may happen from both ends of the wormhole. So you have matter coming in from this side at incredible speeds, let's say one third of the speed of light. And similarly from this side also, matter coming in at enormous velocities. In that case, what may happen is that this matter may collide in the throat of the wormhole and there may be a massive explosion or a series of explosions and then matter comes out again from both sides of the wormhole. So one of the possible signs or, or uh, characteristics that a wormhole, a supermassive wormhole may exhibit is massive gamma ray flashes or massive ejections of, of uh, light and other material. And we have such objects in the universe. They are called quasars or active galactic nuclei. So in certain galaxies, we have this massively energetic central apparently supermassive black holes that give off enormous amounts of radiation, light, gamma rays and other material that comes out of it, mainly from the accretion disk, but maybe not, right? And the luminosity of these quasars is incredible. It is more luminous than the entire Milky Way, just one object, typically. So it is possible that quasars may actually be <laughs> wormholes. I mean, they may actually be uh, telling us that there's a wormhole there. So this is something that is actually being taken seriously and more research is being done. So that is essentially about wormholes and black holes. There is a difference. A black hole is something with a singularity. A wormhole is a tunnel through space and time. And that's what it is. Next question is by Swayam. What will happen if Andromeda and Milky Way collide? Will it end both galaxies or will they form a supermassive galaxy? So that is an interesting question. What is Andromeda? Andromeda is our nearest proper galaxy. We have two other galaxies that are closer than Andromeda. The large Magellanic Cloud and the small one. But Andromeda is the proper, gala proper galaxy that is the closest neighbor to our own galaxy, the Milky Way. So Andromeda is about two and a half million light years away from here. And what we know is that if we examine the light that comes from this galaxy, it is not red shifted, it is blue shifted, which tells you that it is coming towards us at a certain speed. So the Andromeda galaxy, all other galaxies that we see are red shifted because of the expansion of the universe, which means they are moving further away from us. And this expansion is accelerating. But Andromeda is so close to us, only two and a half or so million light years away, that the force of gravity between Andromeda and the Milky Way is greater than the force caused by the expansion of the universe. That's why these two objects, these two galaxies are coming 
closer together. They are moving closer together. And eventually, Andromeda and Milky Way, the two galaxies, our home galaxy and our neighbor, are going to collide. Well, it's not really a collision. It's a merger. So it's going to be a gravitational dance. They will come together. They will pass through each other. Stars will be flung in all directions. Some stars may be flung so so rapidly away that they will be gone forever. But eventually after a few... So this collision or merger will happen in about four and a half billion years from now. And that entire process will likely last two, three, maybe four, maybe five billion years, this entire galactic tango dance. And eventually, what would emerge from this is a larger galaxy. Some stars will be flung off, gone forever. But eventually, the two galaxies will will merge together and give rise to a larger, much larger galaxy that will be approximately the mass of galaxy A and galaxy B put together. Approximately. Slightly less. So that's what it is. So it's not going to be a collision. It's going to be a merger. Why no collision? Because if you look at space, it's mostly empty. And the distance, the average distance between any two stars in the Milky Way or Andromeda is so vast that the even when the two objects come together, there's no not going to be a single, most likely there's going to be no collision of any two stars. It's just going to be a gravitational dance. So, That's what's going to happen. That is the answer. The two galaxies will not collide. They will merge together to form a more massive galaxy. I would not call it a supermassive galaxy, but a a much larger galaxy, which will roughly be the sum of the masses of the two galaxies. Alpha Beta says, what kind of fuel will be be best to use for for space travel? So as of today, the best fuel that we have is uh, chemical fuel, chemical rockets. Uh, whichever has the best specific impulse. So if you look at aviation fuel, jet fuel, it's typically kerosene. Its uh, specific impulse isn't that great. If you take the the fuel that you use in chemical rockets, it's typically, uh, you have different kinds of fuels. You have hydrogen and oxygen. You have hydrogen peroxide. You have hypergolic fuels and, and a whole various classes of fuels. There are solid fuels, liquid fuels and whatnot. The simplest fuel you can imagine for space travel as of today is liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. You bring them together, they will ignite, give off H2O with a huge amount of energy uh, that goes downwards and which will push the rocket in the opposite direction. So that is typically what we use. And of course, we have, like I said, a variety of different fuels as well. So these are all chemical fuels. And that's what we use today for space travel. That is very primitive. If I was an alien who travels across galaxies, I would laugh at these primitive little monkeys who are using chemical rockets. What would advanced aliens use, for for example? If, If I were to speculate, I would say that they would use the reaction of matter and antimatter together. So antimatter and matter, if you bring them together, they they just annihilate and give off pure energy, vast amounts of energy. E equals mc squared, right? So I think that could, if you can actually harness matter and antimatter, bring them together in a controlled manner, if you can store antimatter in a a way that doesn't annihilate it, so that will require very advanced technology, way beyond anything that we have. First of all, we, we don't even have the means of producing 
any reasonable amount of antimatter. The most amount of antimatter we can produce or store is just um, maybe microgram or something, milligrams perhaps. And to store antimatter, we need uh, magnetic confinement. So uh, advanced technology, if aliens have that, they would be able to store maybe kilos or hundreds of kilos of antimatter and matter together, maybe anti-hydrogen and and regular hydrogen, and then bring them together to react in a combustion chamber and give off pure energy. And that would be an excellent way, excellent fuel for traveling interstellar distances, intergalactic distances perhaps. But even that would not allow you to to breach the speed of light, obviously, because of relativity, because of the laws of physics. So the other thing is we could possibly in the future have warp drives. So that is a, that may actually be feasible, um, possibly, but that is very, very speculative and futuristic technology. But it may be possible within the laws of physics. It may be allowed. So, so these are some, some things. So what is warp, warp drives? You actually warp the fabric of space-time itself. And that impels you through space-time, possibly at speeds that exceed the space, speed of light. But whether, because you are inside a certain bubble of space-time, which itself is moving through the larger fabric of space-time, that's why you're not technically breaking the laws of physics. That sort of thing. So that may happen maybe if we stick around for another thousand years, maybe maybe shorter, hopefully. Let's see. So that's a bit of speculation about space travel. More quantum. Dhruv says, can you discuss quantum entanglement and what are the current theories on, on how this phenomenon happens? Quantum entanglement, spooky action at a distance. Einstein, Rosen and Rosenberg, who was it? Einstein and two of his uh, minions, students, students, collaborators. So they came up with this uh, very interesting idea and it's valid. So what is it? What is quantum entanglement? I I can best explain this using an analogy. Let's say I have a pair of gloves. You know what's a glove? You wear it on your hands, right? Let's say I have a pair of gloves. So what I'm going to do, I take this pair of gloves, I put it on the desk, hmm? I close my eyes and I shuffle them around without looking. Okay. Then I take one glove and put it in a box A, take the other glove and put it in the box B without looking at which glove it is. My eyes are closed. And I close the boxes, box A and box B and seal them. Now box A, I send it to Berlin and box B, I send it, send it to Bangalore. I don't know which glove has gone into box B to Bangalore and which glove has gone to Berlin. Now my friend in Berlin opens the box and sees that it's a left-handed glove inside. Then my friend in Berlin will instantaneously know that what has gone to Bangalore is a right-handed glove corresponding to the left-handed partner that he has got or she has got. Right? That is one way of looking at quantum entanglement. So now let's take this analogy and put it into and and apply it to quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is all about the subatomic world, the hyper microscopic world. Let's say you have a subatomic particle with spin zero. Let's not go into what spin is. Particles 
have spin, let, let's say spin is a property of a particle spin up and spin down are the two allowed states of this quantum number of of spin you can either have spin up or spin down but a composite particle may have spin zero okay so let's say i have a composite particle quantum particle which spontaneously disintegrates into two daughter particles so my spin zero particle breaks into two particles now this daughter particle a has spin up and daughter particle b has spin down and if you bring them again together they will have spin zero because up and down add up to zero so my quantum particle breaks into two particles daughter particles spin up and spin down particle a goes to alpha centauri our neighboring star a proxima centauri our neighboring star that's particle a with spin up and particle b with spin down goes to the andromeda galaxy two and a half million light years away now my alien friend in andromeda is going to detect the particle and he or she or it will see it's a spin zero or spin down and then even though he or it is two and a half million light years away from particle a which has spin up he will instantaneously know by measuring one particle what the state of the other particle is this seems to break the speed of light because for information to travel from 2 and 1/2 million light years away would take a time period of 2 and 1/2 million years and yet the alien friend of mine in andromeda knows instantaneously what the particle at the other end of that distance is so that is an entangled system an entangled system from the quantum mechanical definition is a composite system of of two or more particles that has the same wave function so this system of particles cannot be can be described to describe the system of particles you need a single wave function and they are intrinsically entangled together there is no way of telling of of describing one particle without also describing the other particle that's one way of putting it the best way of doing it is through equations but i don't want to do that because it won't make sense to you so that's what it is it's a system that whose properties are entangled together so if you observe if you detect and measure one particle and see what state it is in you will immediately know what the state of the other particle is and this is something that has been tested over kilometers you have satellites in orbit that are able to uh, test and validate that entanglement does happen at large distances so that is what quantum entanglement is and that's how it happens in in well roughly approximately right <clears throat> animish says what is your take on some mystery spots that claim to defy gravity there are three four places in the us and a few more in russia are these artificially created with optical illusion or can there actually be some effect of high magnetic fields and gravitational force gravity gravitation and the magnetic force are totally separate magnetism has no effect on gravity now um yeah there are the, there are these places called uh, magnetic hill or whatever even in india right somewhere in northern india in ladakh or something 
there is a place called magnetic hill where vehicles apparently go upwards instead of down and all that these are nothing but optical illusions none of these can be proven scientifically to defy gravity it's nice illusions that, that you see it's it all depends on the camera angle you angle the camera in a certain way things will look like they're going up so that's what it is and sometimes even if you're there in person based on where you're standing and all that it may look like things are going up even if you have switched off the motor or whatever it's just illusions there is no such thing as the effect of magnetism on gravity magnetic fields do not affect the gravitational force gravitation is not a force it's it's geometrodynamics it's the effect of mass on space time and vice versa so the presence of mass mass tells space time how to curve and the curvature of space time tells mass how to move that is general relativity and that is what we perceive this curvature of space time this curvature of four dimensional space time that we are enmeshed in that's what we perceive as the force of gravity so there are no mystery spots that really defy gravity they appear to because of optical illusions and all that nothing else nothing more than that suga says are <clears throat> do the laws of physics remain the same in the entire universe or do they change from galaxy to galaxy well i have only seen what i can see from my perspective on this little rock in my galaxy all the data that we have is from our, our vantage point here on this planet in our galaxy and from all the data that we have collected over all the centuries and whatever the laws of physics seem to be the same everywhere so that is the brief answer the from science is about data it's about observations and from all the observations that we have the laws of physics seem to remain the same in all directions and all distances there is your answer sir Christoph Frickshorn says, in one of the previous episodes, you mentioned that you only have one meal per day, all you can eat style. What is the science behind that? Is it actually a good idea to mix carbs with protein? I heard it's not ideal to eat fruits with dairy, dairy, milk or legumes, for instance. Wouldn't it be better to take a have a break between eat, eating different kinds of food? Okay. Uh, first of all, is there any... Yeah, I do eat... Typically, one meal a day. When I'm traveling, etc., it's not always possible to do that. But when I'm not traveling, when I'm at home, when I can control things, I prefer to eat one meal a day, all-you-can-eat style. So one massive meal and that's it, done. Then forget about food. One meal. Uh, what's the science behind this? It's not typically all about science. It's about what works best for you. You have to observe your body. You have to observe the... I've tried six meals a day micro meals i have tried intermittent fasting i've tried all kinds of things and i found that what works best for me for my physiology for my dna for my metabolism is one meal a day it works good for me uh, i don't gain weight i gain a reasonable amount of muscle when i'm working out and all so that works for me it may not work for you it may not work for person x it may work even better than me for person y it depends everybody is different we are all human unique human beings now is it a good idea to mix carbs and protein? Is it not better to eat fruit separately and dairy separately and this separately and that separately? Look, <laughs> we are anatomically, genetically, the same as our ancestors who lived 100,000 years ago, 1 lakh years ago. 100,000 years ago, our ancestors were most likely 
hunter gatherers when you are a hunter gatherer you hunt and if you're lucky you get a, get gets uh, you kill some animal rabbit or or a giraffe or whatever it is and when you do that you and your family or you and your tribe your community enjoy a big meal then is go back to basics go back to hunting you may go several days without getting lucky in your hunt those days you don't eat sometimes you may find some fruits you may find some root vegetables whatever that was the hunter gatherer lifestyle that is still encoded in our dna we have not changed a 100000 years is not enough for evolution to 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 make itself known so the human species homo sapiens has been the same for at least a quarter of a million years 250000 years ago 2 and 1/2 lakh years anatomically the same genetically also more or less the same we have not changed much in that time so all of that that lifestyle the hunter gatherer feasting and fasting lifestyle is still encoded in our dna so when our ancestors would hunt they would feast they would eat carbs they would if they found fruits whatever they found they would eat at the same time there were no refrigerators at the time there was no storage there were no there was no agriculture no grain storage so you found a few potatoes you found a few onions and you found a rabbit you ate all of that at the same time and it worked perfectly fine for us so all of this new fangled so called science bro science that you should eat fruit separately don't mix carbs and fats so don't mix carbs and protein all of that stuff doesn't make sense whatever lifestyle was our ancestors used to follow we can still follow it today and be in good health one of the best rules of thumb when it comes to deciding what to eat is to ask yourself a simple question did our ancestors didn't forget about ancestors did human beings eat this a thousand years ago you go to mcdonalds whatever you find there nobody ate that a thousand years ago so don't eat that it's unhealthy you go to a pizzeria did anybody eat pizza with all the toppings and all that a thousand years ago no nobody did so don't eat that it's not healthy for you some people like to drink wine yeah wine has been around for thousands of years so yeah you can drink a little bit as long as you don't drink in excess so the simple rule of thumb is if they did not eat it a thousand years ago don't eat it today it's not healthy for you all of this processed food all that stuff that people eat these days that's why you have this obesity obesity epidemic diabetes coronary heart disease and god knows what other things it's all because of processed food and all that if you can cut that out eat unprocessed foods lots of vegetables whatever protein works for you etc you will be just fine so that's uh, what i can say from my personal experience right um alpha beta alpha beta is lucky today <laughs> what is sleeping paralysis paralysis is it rela- related to horror or paranormal is there any permanent cure uh, it's called sleep paralysis it's a i don't know what so it's it's a it is something many people experience apparently in which you are asleep and then you wake up but you are paralyzed you are not able to move and you feel like there is some supernatural presence in the dark room that you are in in the middle of the night typically and you feel that there is something sitting on your chest something heavy and you are unable to breathe so it feels like there's some 
demon or something sitting on your chest you can't move your muscles you can't open your eyes and it's frightening and this is something that people experience many people apparently experience at least once in their life so that is a phenomenon called sleep paralysis it seems to be some sort of neurological or psychological phenomenon it's something that is known to happen so it is nothing to do with horror or paranormal stuff or whatever because those things that that well have you ever seen a ghost so the thing is this uh, it seems to be a neurological or or psychological phenomenon ghosts don't exist from the perspective of science because you can't take a photograph of a ghost you can you can't replicate the phenomenon of ghosts and paranormal so let's uh, keep that out of the image right now so that is what sleep paralysis is it is a frightening thing i believe people who experience this uh, find it a very scary frightening experience they feel like yeah we have experienced the paranormal the supernatural we've experienced a ghost or a demon or something that's what they feel like uh i don't know about permanent cures or anything or if even if there is any cure i think it happens to people who sleep on their back So typically when you're sleeping on your back you feel that there is something sitting on your chest right here. So possibly one of the cures would be one of the if if somebody experiences this on a regular basis maybe you can sleep on your side instead of sleeping on your on your back or sleep on your on your face on your, on, on the stomach. So maybe that could help. So that's what I can say about this thing. <clears throat> Arman says how can an average person who doesn't have scientific training tell if a research paper is credible or not there is no way to sugarcoat this a person who doesn't have scientific training cannot tell if a research paper is credible or not the only thing you can do if you don't have scientific training is to rely on the opinions of people who do have scientific training but then it is like second hand opinion that you are that you are imbibing so when you are relying on opinions you're always uh, opinions are always unreliable many scientists have opinions that have been that have turned out to be completely wrong and many scientific papers high quality scientific papers so so one of the um, one of the criteria that people typically use as a benchmark is to see whether a scientific paper has been published in a peer reviewed journal so that is one benchmark the second benchmark is does it have lots of citations do lots of other scientists cite that paper in that case it is very credible right and some scientific papers are not published in peer reviewed journals some scientific papers are are just left out there as preprints there is this very famous uh, preprint server called archive archive arxiv.org which is the preprint repository for the physical sciences for computer science mathematics and so on and so forth you know what when the very famous mathematician grigory pelelman came up with his proof of the poincare conjecture he wrote it down in a, in a paper in the form of a paper and he simply placed it on the preprint archive he did not submit it for publication to any peer reviewed paper to to any peer peer reviewed journal so his 
groundbreaking proof of the Poincaré conjecture was placed on a preprint server and it was not peer reviewed so that's also what you get so it doesn't mean that if somebody has simply put their research on a peer, on, on a preprint server it doesn't mean it's not credible the, one of the greatest mathematical breakthroughs of all time was never peer reviewed and what happened after that is that a bunch of chinese scientists tried to steal that and tried to trick take the credit for away for, for for the solving of the poincare conjecture they tried to steal credit from gregory perelman so that's what happened so the, so at the end of the day there is no way for a person without scientific training to really tell whether a research paper is credible or not but there are these benchmarks that you can follow and that would give you a good idea of how good or bad a paper may be if it is published that's a that's a good a good sign if it has lots of citations it's an even better sign so that's how you can possibly guess whether it's credible or not okay this is big aditya says i have recently joined the iit an iit ge coaching institute in the 10th standard i had simple topics like linear quadratic equations linear equations pythagoras theorem uh, various progressions and so on i was good at math i used to get 80 out of 80 marks but on the first day of coaching they taught us uh, differential and integral calculus i found it very difficult dy dx d squared y by dx squared my confidence is has suddenly gone down i used to be a topper but now, now i'm feeling that i'll become the lowermost student of math the same thing is happening for chemistry physics etc please guide me and uh, how to do study of chemistry look the first time somebody encounters calculus it's like you're suddenly thrown into the ocean it's so different from everything you've been taught before differentiation integration differential equations and so on and so forth it's like scary the first time you encounter it it's like your whole world whatever you you thought was was the reality all of it has suddenly turned out to be illusion that's how you typically feel the first time you encounter calculus difference differential differentiation integration and so on typically one finds integration harder than differentiation because it's the opposite of that and it's got a whole toolkit of techniques that one must learn so what do you do simple solve problems take a book of problems of calculus first of all what you do the first thing you do is you try and understand the concepts what is differentiation what do you mean by dy by dx what are limits get these basics right talk to a good teacher if you have one or acquire a good book the shom series books on pre calculus calculus are, are excellent they're excellent for self study so first understand these concepts properly there are lots of youtube videos which i believe would give excellent uh, excellent uh, um expositions on on these basic concepts so first get the concepts right geometrically what does dy by dx mean what does an integral mean from a from the geometric perspective understand that get the concept right then what you do is you solve problems not two problems not 12 problems you solve hundreds and hundreds of problems you go through it you force yourself for days weeks months give you some three months just solve 100 problems per day maybe more if you have the time go through it do it again and again and again until it becomes second nature you do this i guarantee you it will become the easiest thing in the world differentiation then the same thing for integration 
solve hundreds of problems a hundred problems a day solve a hundred integrals per day do it for three months see what happens your confidence at the end of those three months will be sky high same for differential equations and everything else you have to put in the hard work there is no substitute for hard work you have to put in the hundreds of hours and the, you have to solve the thousands of problems you do that i guarantee that you will become the topper again and the same goes for chemistry you have to solve problems get the concepts the fundamentals right very very you have to be crystal clear about the fundamentals and then solve hundreds of problems to be a good student to be good at anything in life you have to put in the hard work there is no substitute for hard work talent is overrated talent means nothing you may be the most gifted and intelligent person but if you will not put in the hard work you will you will achieve nothing so that's what i would tell you all the best sir aditya um okay ak view is from mumbai i love science especially physics aerospace etc i'm very passionate about science but recently i scored only 57% in the 12th boards i cannot understand why i can't do better in exams i don't like rote learning over the years my whole youtube feed consists of lectures from brian green lawrence krauss michio kaku feynman and your videos my videos even being so passionate about it i cannot score in the subjects should i leave science as i've been told my many or should i stick to it as it's my passion i would say that the when it comes to passing exams it's again about going through the process of solving hundreds of problems rote learning is is a pain i know but in the indian education system you want to get good marks you may have to indulge in some rote learning so once again the solution the the, the answer is the same you there is no substitute for hard work you have to solve hundreds of problems you have to put in hundreds you have to solve thousands of problems you have to put in hundreds of hours of hard work effort you do that you will become good at anything but of course it's also about aptitude you may love science you may be passionate about it but maybe for whatever reason you may be better at something else in in actual practice as a practitioner some people love music but they can never play good music right it doesn't mean that they should not enjoy music but it means that they should enjoy music as a hobby as a listener as a consumer but as a practitioner they should pick up some other career that is also a possibility so you may be somebody who loves science who's passionate about it pursue that as a hobby pursue that as a consumer of content but maybe as a practitioner you may be better at some other some other occupation that is also a possibility so try approach a first do the hard work solve hundreds thousands of problems put in the dedication and the and the effort for 3 to 6 months and see what the results are and if you still don't find any improvement in your marks then maybe you should take up after after putting after doing this 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 uh, experiment if it still doesn't work then maybe you should take up something else so give yourself a chance first and put in the hard work and if you still feel that you're not doing well enough then maybe you can pursue science as a hobby and take up some other occupation okay so that's what i can say plan a plan b have both plans ready okay let's take a couple more questions this is by samhita is microbial life present on mars does that somehow give 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 a hint of possible existence of life of life life on mars millions of years ago 
So we don't have unambiguous evidence of microbial life having existed on Mars. We have a piece of rock. I forgot what it's called. ALH something, something, something. Uh, we know it came from Mars. And a cross section of this rock was taken and microscopic analysis was done. And what was detected is microtubules that look exactly like the, like the capsules of bacteria on Earth. So if it is indeed the, the, the fossilized remains of ancient bacteria, then it means that in the past there used to be bacteria on Mars. Maybe even today they may have survived underground, possibly. So it's a possibility, but it's not 100% proven. Some people say it's just, just a coincidence. Some scientists say it could be just a coincidence. It is not an unambiguous demonstration that this represents ancient life or, or a sign of ancient life. Uh, apart from that, we have certain, the Americans, NASA has a, has a rover, I forgot what it's called, Perseverance, Ingenuity, Endurance, whatever it's called. So it's, it's doing some research there. There's a helicopter also over there, a small uh, rotorcraft. So, but th that's not quite equipped to, to look for signs of life. It's doing various kinds of scientific tests on the atmosphere and the soil and the composition of rocks and all that. But that's not enough to tell us uh, for sure whether life existed or not. We do know that a couple of billion years ago, there was flowing water on Mars. Mars was a much hotter place. It had a much thicker atmosphere. It had a magnetic field. And it's quite likely, it, it, not likely, it's quite possible. It is not quite possible. It is possible that life may have existed on Mars at that time when it was a nice, warm planet with a thicker atmosphere and flowing water. It's possible. So the possibility is very much there, but the evidence still is not there with us. At least unambiguous evidence, uh, we don't have that. Right? So that's the answer. Uh, the logical motivation 95 says, can you explain the spaghetti effect in detail and in normal English, please? <laughs> well, that's what I strive to do. I try to, I strive to explain things in normal language. So, have you seen Saturn? So, what you're talking about, the spaghetti effect is called spaghettification. It is something that, that is related to black holes. So, let me explain this. We know the, the very famous iconic planet called Saturn. Saturn has rings. It's a planet, a gas giant with a massive ring system around it. Why do those rings exist? Those rings are the debris, the rubble that comes out of an ancient moon of Saturn that was destroyed maybe in a collision or something else. Now in physics, in classical Newtonian physics, there is something called the Roche limit, R-O-C-H-E, Roche limit and the Roche effect. That has something to do with tidal forces. So every mass, every object, every planet has a Roche limit. So this limit is the limit at which if any orbiting object uh, comes within that limit, it is going to be ripped apart by tidal forces and it won't be able to stay in one piece. Roughly, that's what it means. Roughly. Okay, not this is not the precise definition, but if the moon, for instance, if the Earth's moon were to come closer to the Earth, this is the Earth, this is the moon, if we were to move the moon much closer and bring it within the Roche limit, 
then the moon would be disintegrated by the by the tidal force of the earth what does tidal force mean it means the earth is here and let's say this is a satellite the pull of gravity on the part of the object that is closer to the earth is way greater than the pull of gravity on the other part and that distorts and and destroys the object that is the tidal force at the roche limit and and within that so in the case of a black hole the force of gravity as you go closer to a black hole is way 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 stronger black holes have incredibly strong gravity so as you come closer and closer to the event horizon of a black hole the tidal force becomes larger so let's say you're a human being let's say this is a human being going towards a black hole the bottom of the screen is is towards a black hole you're going closer and closer and as you go closer to the black hole the force of gravity on the legs is way greater than the force of gravity on the head of the person and we know what that does it will pull that person and stretch that person apart like like strands of spaghetti so that is spaghettification and as you cross the event horizon and go towards the singularity which may be there inside the tidal force gets even stronger so so if it is a, a reasonably small black hole this spaghettification is much larger much much stronger and the tidal forces are much much greater if it's a supermassive black hole you may not experience that drastic uh, spaghetti effect so that in short in brief in normal english is spaghettification it's that a person who is falling into a, into a black hole feet first or head first will be pulled apart as if they are spaghetti not a not a good way to go right <laughs> so that is the spaghetti effect all right i am done with today's questions shall i take a couple of live chat questions okay can we drink alcohol in black hole well if you can get inside a black hole with your bottle of alcohol you can try it <laughs> okay what else do we have um let's take a couple of questions um if we can you have some questions i'll take a couple now isro me venus mission i've heard of some mission that isro is supposed to undertake to venus shukrayan is it called i'm not sure so i don't know the details i don't know which year is going to happen maybe by 2025 or something that was the that's what i had heard a couple of years ago so typically what one would imagine is that um you would send a spacecraft to this planet to our neighboring planet venus the spacecraft would go into orbit around venus and it would have a bunch of scientific instruments that would uh, do various tests and analysis of the atmosphere and maybe the surface of the planet so if you send a spacecraft that has a radar or with it then you can maybe do a radar uh, scan of the surface of the planet and uh, get details about its topology and if you have spectrometers and other things then you can look at the composition of the gases of the atmosphere and and gain more knowledge about that so that's the kind of thing you could do in a venus mission mission and that's possibly what the shukrayan mission will be about but i'm not sure when it's going to be launched and so that is still something that needs to be looked at all right <clears throat> 
you would take the diet question but not mine you are a typical indian i am a typical indian sir but i don't know what your other question is instead of asking this question or making this comment you could have asked your question again i get thousands of comments i cannot pick everybody's question please understand that please okay what else do we have okay some pe- people are asking questions about things that are not related to science please don't do that today is about science this live stream is only about science uh when is the earth going to be destroyed the earth will be destroyed when our sun becomes a red giant so in roughly about 5 billion years from today the sun will become larger and larger it will have become a red giant and eventually it will shed its outer layers and that will go out in the form of a nebula a planetary nebula like like uh, which may look kind of like the cat's eye nebula perhaps the sun is never going to go supernova the sun is too small for that so it will eventually shed its outer layers it will first become a red giant it may engulf the planet mercury within its within itself when it becomes a red giant and eventually the nuclear reaction within the sun at the core will become weaker and uh, and the outer layers will be expelled slowly over time and that could very much destroy the earth and be, even before that when the sun becomes a red giant the oceans will boil off and whatever water is left on the planet will disappear the planet earth will become very hot and dry so that's the kind of destruction our planet will see eventually the sun will become a white dwarf and spend its days its its remaining days like that so that is the kind of fate eventual long term fate our planet will see okay what is murphy's law is it purely hypothetical murphy's law is not science murphy's law says that if something can go wrong it will go wrong it's not science it's just a, it's kind of a joke actually it's not joke actually it's quite painful <laughs> people experience that but it is not science it is uh, it is a certain pattern that one sees in life sometimes that if something can go wrong it probably will go wrong unless you have taken the best of precautions so that is what murphy's law is and that's where we are do i believe in ghosts well i have not seen a ghost so unless i see one how do i believe in it yeah but i don't know if i mean ghosts are something you can't prove or disprove so that's not science it's philosophy or spirituality or whatever all right i think we are at the end of today's session almost 2 hours almost 2 hours so we'll we'll end it here thank you everybody great to be talking science again that is what i mean that's what i find the most interesting i'm a science guy more than a history guy or a geopolitics guy or whatever else guy science is what i enjoy the most so it was great to do this again and we'll do it again in the future thank you everybody for your questions thank you for watching thank you for your viewership and once again this video was sponsored by the like button go and smash it and thank our sponsors thank you very much and i will see you in the next live stream which is tomorrow